Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Inside Intercom. In a fast-growing product company, there are a lot of unsung heroes, but the value of one particular group cannot be overstated. That's your infrastructure engineering team. The ones making sure that, first of all, your app is secure, secondly, that uptime is all the time, and then that the rest of your engineering org has the tools they need to build features your users need and want. This week's guest, Will Larson, has managed infrastructure teams for some of the biggest names in software. Today, Will's leading foundation engineering at Stripe. Partnering with the infrastructure, data, and developer productivity teams there, his team builds the tools that support every Stripe engineer and makes Stripe a reliable performance system for its merchants. Going back a bit, Will was an engineering leader at Dig and then at Uber, where he scaled the infrastructure engineering from a small team to more than 70. And while most of Will's work happens behind the scenes, he's always sharing his latest thoughts on infrastructure, dev tools, management, books he's reading, and more on his Irrational Exuberance blog. You can check that out at lethane.com. That's L-E-T-H-A-I-N.com. The voice you'll hear on our end of this week's conversation is one of our own engineering managers, Todd Royal. And in his chat with Will, we hear a little bit about why infrastructure teams struggle to make the transition from maintenance work to innovation. When you come out of kind of this firefighting mode, all of a sudden you need to figure out what to work on. You have to go from kind of just solving problems to actually selecting problems to solve. And, and one of the challenges is like now all of your muscles around picking problems, all your muscles around the, like learning from your users have atrophied because you just don't do it. How to better keep your org aligned as the team grows? I think as you change kind of the team composition, as you move kind of teams to different areas or kind of refocus them in different problems, it, it damages trust a little bit and you have to rebuild that trust. And how the role of management changes as a company scales. Something I've been thinking about a lot is that in fast-growing companies or very early companies, management is largely around change management. How do you solve more and more and more different problems? In more established or slightly slower-growing companies, it's much more of an optimization game. If you're looking for more insights and lessons like this, check out our full library of more than 100 Inside Intercom conversations to date. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you tune in for podcasts these days. Now, I'm going to hand hosting duties over to Intercom's own Todd Royal, who's in the studio with Will Larson. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Hey, Will. Welcome to Inside Intercom. Great to have you today. Uh, To kick things off, can you just give us a rundown of your career to date and a description of what you're doing today at Stripe? Yeah, absolutely. And I think kind of my career like origin is an interesting one. I when I graduated from college, I was actually teaching English in Japan for a year. And that's when I started doing a lot of tech blogging. And then somewhat, I think, ridiculously, one of my blog posts is about this Yahoo product called Yahoo Boss, build your own search service. And they contacted me. And so here I'm teaching English. Uh, and I studied computer science, but like had no experience. And, and somehow this blog post turned into a job at, at Yahoo over the course of the next six months and like eventually brought me out here, which is, I think, like kind of like a miracle, really, for, for how my career got started. So I was at Yahoo for a couple of years, learned a ton there, and then joined Dig. Uh, I always describe Dig as like Reddit, but better, although in, in every sense we had bankrupt, the product failed, so there's no actual evidence that it's better in any way. But in my heart, it's certainly a superior product, although deceased. And then at Dig, that's when I moved into management. And so one of the exciting things about a company that is going through a little bit of change, a little bit of chaos, is there's a lot of opportunity. 
And for me, that opportunity was getting to move into management there. And so I stayed there until the company actually closed. And also through this talent acquisition where we joined Social Code. So Social Code um, company in Washington, D.C. actually, and we started our office out here. was there for a couple more years and then really started thinking about what I wanted for my career. And for the first time, really, at any point in my career until then, it had been very kind of haphazard. And I thought about what I wanted to do next. And particularly, I wanted to work at a company that was growing very quickly. And at that time, the fastest growing company, by some definition of fastest, was Uber. And so I went, um, one of my friends who had worked at Dig had moved there, um, joined Uber and was there working on the infrastructure engineering team for, for a couple of years as well. And that was just like a, a transformational experience. Just I think I learned more in those two years that I was there um, going from 200 to 2,000 engineers. And I think in, in the entire rest of my career, really. But but also it got a little bit worn out, you have to admit. Um, just such chaotic kind of growth spurt it was, it was a lot to kind of be part of. And about two years ago, I joined Stripe. At Stripe, I'm working with the foundation engineering team. That's our developer tooling. That's our data engineering. And that's our infrastructure engineering group. So what's uh, the nature of the work that you're doing today with Stripe on that team? So we have such a large remit that we work on quite, quite a few different things. Um, but really the way I look at it is what are kind of the core like properties of infrastructure or the core things we do for the company. Um, and so we think about security as our, our number one kind of North Star security. Um, Stripe moves money. Security is kind of more important for us. It's better for us to be down if we're insecure than it is for us to be up and insecure. Second, though, is then reliability. Our companies like depend hugely on us. So we spend a, t- a lot of time about the property of reliability. How can we make sure that people can depend on us? Three, um, a little bit unusually, I think about usability. And particularly, our biggest customers um, are externally these merchants that depend on us. But internally, we have, you know, at this point, a little bit over 300 engineers that depend on the tooling and the platform and the infrastructure we provide. So how can we make sure that we're creating as much leverage as possible? for these engineers internally who depend on us and really thinking about building infrastructure as a product to serve them. And then finally, uh, after that, we think a little bit about latency, like how can we make it fast? How can we make it responsive? And at the very bottom is efficiency. Um, I think as Stripe becomes an increasingly mature company, efficiency will get more important for us. But, but right now, we're very focused on kind of making sure that we're providing the best possible experience for the merchants and our internal operating efficiency in terms of kind of our, our infrastructure spend, et cetera, is a little bit lower on our priority list. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because you had written on your blog recently about the struggle for infrastructure engineering teams to shift from working on maintenance and tech debt to really delivering innovating features. Why do you think that is and where do you see the tension between kind of these two modes of working? That's a really interesting and important question. Um, I, I think to answer it, I can go back to my when I first got hired at Uber. I was actually hired as a DevOps manager, which was kind of funny in the sense that I literally didn't know what DevOps was. I was out there like Googling like what is DevOps. And one of the one of the things I found as I'm like desperately Googling what is DevOps, I found this book called The Phoenix Project, uh, written by Gene Kim, which is a great introduction to kind of how to do DevOps and in particular around kind of the Kanban style of managing projects. And the core tenet of that book is really you only get value when you ship things. And so I think there's this kind of point in kind of infrastructure management when you are a little bit un- on fire, when you have so much stuff you need to do and pretty much none of it cannot be done, when you have to get extremely kind of myopic, extremely focused on just shipping things. Um, there's no value in doing work. There's only value in finishing work. And so I think this is kind of the core part of kind of toil management of teams that are pretty underwater is you just spend so much time making sure you ship as many things as possible. 
Um, and, and part of that means like not spending any time on things that they don't add to shipping. This gets really challenging, though, on the flip side, when you come out of this toil, when you come out of kind of this firefighting mode, all of a sudden you need to figure out what to work on. You have to go from kind of just solving problems to actually selecting problems to solve. And and one of the challenges is like now all of your muscles around picking problems, all your muscles around like learning from your users have atrophied because you just don't do it. And this in particular, you think about things like product management when you are working through toil. There's not a huge role for product management necessarily in infrastructure groups. But then you pop out and all of a sudden you need product managers, but you haven't probably prioritized hiring them. You haven't like built this relationship with them. And so making that switch from kind of being very focused on managing the completion of projects to actually doing user discovery, user validation, and building these relationships can be a a rocky time for infrastructure groups. Yeah, I think what you said about, you know, really only getting value when you ship, that's really something that resonates with me. Uh, At Intercom, we have one of these principles that shipping is your company's heartbeat. So certainly there's a lot of emphasis on making sure that we're shipping things regularly and it can be a struggle. To get to your point on product management, I'm curious about how engineering at Stripe, especially on your team, is partnering with product management, partnering with design, and what are the pieces of that that you think are unique to your development process? Yeah, so I I think like most small companies, initially Stripe had this kind of everyone does everything generalist model. And so the engineers were writing all the technical kind of uh, writing, all the the documentation, they were writing the code, they were doing the product management, they were like reaching out to the business partners and trying to establish partnerships. And and so early on, I think we had a great culture of just the generalist. And and that really worked with us for quite, quite a while. And as I think one of the special things about Stripe is that so many of the early employees who are especially those who are still there at Stripe, in increasingly large roles started out as real generalists and just an incredibly broad skill set. However, like as we've gotten larger, um, sometimes it just helps to have someone who's done it before. Sometimes it helps to have someone who's not learning on the fly. So we have moved more and more towards having specialists in certain like really high leverage spots across the company. And one of those is definitely product management. Uh, and to the point about switching from toil to innovation, user discovery, user validation, learning how to actually get real feedback. Like people, people don't like to give negative feedback. Um, even if your your software or your tool doesn't work well, people kind of tend to say what they think you want to hear. So learning how to actually get people to tell you what they act, feel about your software, particularly internally where you're like sitting next to someone and you know like you, you really want to complain that, that the Kafka broker is like publishing latencies are too slow. But instead you say something like really benign, like, ah, I think it's good enough. Learning how to like extract that is a skill that I think product managers are hugely valuable at. In terms of Stripe's like product management, we're, we're adding more and more and we're defining their role more clearly. I think historically the edge management role and the product management role had a lot of overlap, but those roles are getting more defined as we go because there's just so much to do that really having both roles is starting to make more and more sense. In terms of infrastructure engineering, I think there is kind of a classic challenge where very few infrastructure engineering groups have product management that tends to rely on the senior engineers or tends to rely on the, the engineering managers. And I think that is a blessing and a curse. I think the, the, the blessing is that you are your own customer. Like you've used these tools, you are building for people who you understand the needs. The curse is that sometimes being your own customer blinds you, particularly as you've been in infrastructure longer and longer, as opposed to using the tools, it can be easy to get a little bit disconnected from, from what the users actually need. So this is definitely something that we're thinking about. How can we use product management 
Right now, we're really focused on how do we build the skills of our existing engineers and existing engineering managements in product management. But I suspect even an infrastructure will have product managers in the long term. Yeah, I mean, certainly growth is something that any successful startup is really shooting for. But obviously, with that comes a lot of hiring. What are the things that you've been doing at Stripe to stay productive and stay focused during that kind of growth? When I think about kind of hyper growth, when I think about kind of companies growing this quickly, I think the most important thing is like being very reality based. And what I mean by that is you can add folks to a team that is growing quickly, but it will actually slow the team down. In the long run, though, that team will be more effective and will have more capacity. But in the short run, it's, it's just going to get slower. And so I think you have to be very honest about the trade-offs that you're making in terms of kind of maximizing for the which durations of time. And sometimes these trade-offs are just really uncomfortable because there they're kind of is no acceptable trade-off to make, and you have to make a trade-off anyway. Um, so I, I think the first thing I think is just being very consequent in your, in your reasoning and understanding the consequences. That said, there, there's a few things that really matter. And the thing that is most important, more important than literally anything else, is onboarding. And so Stripe has spent a lot of time trying to make our onboarding process as, as effective as possible. We have this program called Dev Start, which is kind of the, the onboarding boot camp model, a little bit similar to what Facebook has done, where we get people in and we get them to ship a commit on the first day, like a, a very simple commit on the first day. But also in the first month, they ship something meaningful, ship something usually that they can see kind of as a user-facing thing. And I think that's incredibly powerful, first in terms of building a community of new hires, and as you grow quickly, I think maintaining a community is one of the very important things to do, um, but also in terms of just getting that rapid experience of getting a commit up, getting it deployed, um, maybe debugging it if something goes a little bit wrong, and actually building the competency with the day-to-day -day tools. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience. It's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now, and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. The other thing that comes with hiring is really just evaluating skill sets and deciding what things you want to focus on as a company for the future. So... My question really is, what are the skills that you would say that you value most now among engineers in today's market? I don't think a lot about kind of skills in like the, the literal sense. I, I think there, there is a challenge here, which is that there are just so many different technologies. I think about the JavaScript ecosystem, and it's just so rapidly gone from kind of jQuery to Bootstrap to Angular to React. Now there's like Elm out there. 
And if you had specialized in any one of these technologies, like there's like this in JavaScript now, it feels like this 18 month life cycle for different kind of frameworks and it's just evolving so quickly. But I do think there are kind of like three meta skills that I think are like incredibly important. And those are problem selection, picking valuable problems, solution validation, which is actually making sure your approach solves the problem. And then three, execution. And something that I think is incredibly important across all of those is the ability to communicate well and to be an effective collaborator in a larger community of developers around you. And so I, I think absolutely um, in terms of Stripe's kind of general theory around hiring generalists when possible and specialists when, when highly leveraged, I do love to get people who have general experience. But really the thing that I found most important in, in the folks that we hire and the folks I've worked with are problem selection, solution validation, and then just pure execution. Makes a lot of sense. And the fact that you're talking about problem selection, solution validation, suggests that you're really looking for engineers who are problem-oriented and focused on outcomes. We're that way, too. Our software engineers are actually called product engineers internally for that reason. We want to find people who are focused on solving problems rather than just the technology. So the last thing on growth, I think, is as you're hiring and onboarding engineers at this rate that you're sustaining, you obviously need management as well to jump in and and kind of corral the teams and and lead people. So from one engineering manager to another, what advice would you have for engineers who are thinking about making that leap into management? Career advice is always dangerous because the the devil is always in the details. Um, a, a few thoughts, though. I, I think the, the most important thing is to move into management for the right reasons. And I think historically at many companies, there's this sense that kind of management is a promotion um, or that there's like different compensation. I think increasingly at the kind of top tier companies uh, in, in the Valley and, and I, I imagine elsewhere, it's possible to go quite far in your technical career and get compensated equivalently to the, the management role. But in particular, I think one of the, I think, illusions of management is that you have a lot more control and you have a lot more kind of authority or power. You have a lot more opportunities to make decisions for more folks as a manager, but also the constraints of being a good manager are like quite challenging. You have to keep your team happy. You have to make sure your team's doing something they, they love. You have to keep your peers happy. You have to make sure that the product management or the design or the other engineering manager you're working with um, are, are happy with what you're doing. And you have to keep the, the company, your, your management chain happy. And to actually do all three of those to me is the hallmark of a a wonderful manager, but also doesn't necessarily give you a ton of flexibility in the decisions you make. Um, It can be like actually more decisions to make, but less actual control in doing them at times. Um, So I definitely think going to management because you want to help is critical. Going into for control, for compensation definitely doesn't. The other thing, though, about moving to management I would mention is that one of the choices you do get to make is what company, like what environment do you move into management? I think picking a company that is a healthy management culture is so important. It's it's so much of what you will become as a manager is based on your first experience. And, and you as an experienced engineer will get a number of opportunities to move into management. I think I personally leapt on the first one that I got. And occasionally I regret that because I came up in like a bit of a firefighting chaos management culture, which I've had to unlearn a lot of those lessons over time. So the, the second biggest thing I would argue is Really try to find a company where you want to become like the managers there and, and start your management career in that environment. That's an interesting way to think about it. Are there things that have stood out to you as being 
indicative of a strong management culture or things that you would say, uh, you know, engineers, if they're thinking about making that move, that these are positive signs? I can give kind of a, a different an answer to a similar question, which is like, is there like a management culture or are there like many different types of management cultures? Something I've been thinking about a lot is that in fast growing companies or very early companies, management is largely around change management. How do you solve more and more and more different problems? Um, And this is very much kind of an evolutionary role where you're always dealing with a new problem and you're trying to get like a reasonable, like kind of good enough solution in place, then you move on to another problem. In more established or slightly slower growing companies, it's much more of an optimization game. And um, how do you make the team a little bit happier? How do you get like a slightly stronger person in the door to fill someone who has left? How do you like improve your relationship with someone a little bit more? How do you like get a few more story points done in this sprint? Very different feel. And I think a lot of the challenges that folks have in terms of like first moving into management, but also moving between management roles is not understanding that there's these two extremely different skill sets and thinking they can take what they mastered at kind of a, a more mature company in terms of like just making the folks who are there happy and kind of iterating incrementally and applying it to a place where they have to be like extremely consequent about solving problems kind of as as poorly as sufficiently possible and then moving on. And they're like extremely different outlooks to succeed in those two. I certainly can resonate with the idea of moving from a, a large company to a much smaller company and having those kinds of managerial challenges. So switching gears a little bit, at the end of 2017, you published a, a Twitter thread about some lessons that you had learned. And one of the things that struck me really was in a scaling organization, the ability to be consistently aligned within and across teams is a marker of excellence. Time to alignment is your reorg success metric. So what to you does successful time to alignment look like? And where have you seen organizations struggle with this? So when you think about alignment, I, I think it's a question of having shared goals and like truly shared goals and actually everyone agreeing on those shared goals. I think as you change kind of the team composition, as you move kind of teams to different areas or kind of refocus them in different problems, it, it damages trust a little bit and you have to rebuild that trust. So when I think about time to alignment, I think about how long does it take to rebuild that trust and for the teams to start operating effectively again? I think even a stronger definition, kind of like a a litmus test here is how long is it before you can comfortably ask a team that's just been like reorged or removed to do something they don't want to do without like being afraid that they're going to like like revolt or kind of like get, get, get upset with you? How long does it take to actually build up that relationship and that trust again after the last change to be able to stretch them a little bit into doing something uncomfortable? And so a lot of this is just um, communication and communicating a lot, communicating honestly and with some some vulnerability. And, and sometimes I think one of the, the hardest parts in terms of doing these well is that often organizational changes are solving a problem that no one really wants to talk about. Like maybe there's a manager who's really struggling, but you can't just say like we're doing a reorg because this person's struggling. So instead you talk about doing a reorg to solve like a proxy goal. And that that can be when you end up with kind of communications that people read and like this doesn't resonate with them. It, it sounds like it just sounds fake and it's because you actually aren't able to talk about the, the actual goal. So I think trying to avoid having to talk about proxy goals is quite important. But then if you do have to pick a proxy goal, and I think sometimes you really do, making sure you pick one that aligns as closely with your actual goal as possible so that people don't like read this plan or read this reasoning and just think about kind of, you know, the classic like, 
left to go spend time with their family and everyone's like, I, this is a lie. You have to be careful um, about you know, triggering that sensation in folks. Are there ways in which you've seen that really break down in the past? I, I think that the marker of reorgs not going well is the time to next reorg. And, and so I, I think like, as a general rule of thumb, the frequency of reorgs tends to imply when the reorgs or the org changes are not going super well. So I, I don't think it's usually testing. So, so you think about like user testing, you think about like uh, solution validation. I, I find you can do this with like anything, including like a reorg proposal. Usually if you find some of the impacted teams, find someone you can trust and like run it by them, they can tell you like immediately if it actually resonates with them. And so I, I think that Maybe this is not like a, a marker specifically of what's wrong, but if you actually go do some like user validation um, with the, the users of this reorg, if you will, they, they can almost always tell you. Sometimes you, you have to communicate a little bit to like try to like get around the proxy goal kind of versus real goal element, but really just asking people if it makes sense. And if they say no, it probably doesn't and you should keep working on it. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way to describe it. And sometimes people in an organization don't always realize that, you know, management is often just trying things and, and seeing what is working well, a lot like developing a product. You know, you want to get that fast feedback and you want to validate that your solution is working. And if it isn't, then you need to make a change. But that same concept applies to something like org changes where a lot of people are involved. So you're an avid reader. And one of the things that you often do is share key takeaways from what you've been reading on your blog. So for our listeners, what is one book that you would recommend every engineer read and why? The most interesting book I've read this year was Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. It was a great exploration of why sometimes when we try to solve problems, our strategies just don't work. But really the book that I've been most influenced by that I would recommend people read is Thinking in Systems of Primer by Donella Meadows. It's a book about solving problems, but more about understanding problems. And in particular, uh, humans tend to think about things causally, like the server is down because we pushed a piece of bad code. But sometimes the problems are much more complicated, like you upgraded a small dependency, which made your API a little bit slower, which caused connections to start backing up in your proxy, which caused health checks to start flapping, which caused APIs to start failing like 10% uh, of the time. And it's really thinking about that type of problem where it's not just like A, then B, but actually these like interrelated events that I think thinking in systems really gave me a great set of tools to work on and really is a book that I would recommend to anyone. All right. So lastly, where should our listeners go to keep up with your writing, your insights, and any more recommendations you have? Yeah. So I think one of the, the many regrets I have in my life is that when I was, you know, like 13, I came up with like this online handle, which is I think what was really cool to do when I was 13. But now now I have this domain, I have this like Twitter alias, or this email address that is actually nonsensical. It's not, you know, like the, the cyber wizard level of nonsensical, but it, it still makes literally no sense. Um, so I blog a lot on my blog, I call it rational exuberance, which is I think like a really interesting phenomenon from kind of economics. Um, but my blog is lethane, L-E-T-H-A-I-N.com. And again, like people love to ask, like, why is it called that? And, and the answer is, you know, like when I was 13, like mudding, you know, like text-based online gaming, mudding, multi-user dungeons, um, came up with this name. And then like tragically, I never had the foresight to, to change it. So this is really one of my, my great kind of regrets in life has been this, this terrible branding decision I made when I was 13. 
Yeah, it's funny how a brand like that can follow a person. But, uh, you know, if that's your biggest regret, that's that's not too bad. Definitely. All right. Thanks, Will. It was really great talking to you. And uh, hopefully we can have you back sometime for more Inside Intercom. Thank you so much. Um, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.